And now hear the word of God from Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do hear in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent away to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Waypoint. How are y'all doing this morning? Thumbs up, I appreciate that. Um, as we continue in our series in the Gospel of Luke this morning, we find ourselves in a text that, that marks the way that Luke has chosen to present the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. It, the, it begins with the proclamation of his mission to his hometown people. Now, I want to be honest with you that this has been a really tough text to grapple with this week because there's just, there's just so much packed into such a short window to such a short passage. I mean, first of all, how, how many of you can imagine the order of service and the cultural expectations of a traditional Jewish synagogue service in first century Nazareth? I mean, some of you have seen The Chosen, so you're like, I think I got it a little bit. Secondly, all, all the Old Testament allusions, and then all the allusions in the allusions, right? I mean, what's the passage Jesus is quoting from in Isaiah? Should we expound on that? What about the reference to the widow in Zarephath during Elijah's day? Or the story of Naaman during Elisha's day? Did you, did you know that Elisha and Elijah are two different people? Right? You know these things. Then, and, and again, I just, just want to be honest with you. The most concerning dilemma for me is the conclusion. This is personal, the conclusion here. This synagogue service concludes with people trying to throw the giver of the sermon off a cliff. Okay? I mean, Jesus just preached the shortest sermon ever, so it can't be length. I mean, maybe, maybe longer sermon's the way to go, 
At least I have a chance of putting some of you to sleep and I can get out of here. <laughs> or hopefully by this point, I have your attention. See, Jesus, he's opened the way. So let's go in and see what he has for us. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to point out a problem that the recipients of his message aren't aware that they have. It's there. It's right there in front of them. They just don't, they don't see it. They're, they're blind to it. And he intends to draw it out of them. He's going to provoke it out of them. What kind of spiritual maladies might you be blind to? And wouldn't you want Jesus, that great physician, to show you so that he can heal you? But before we get there, I, I want to point out a problem that modern readers will have with this text that, that you might even, not even be aware of yourself. And hopefully it, it doesn't deter you, but, it, but it's there. So let's back up for a moment and start at the beginning. Luke begins his gospel by saying, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So here's the rub. Luke providing an orderly account doesn't mean that it's chronological. The account does not need to be chronological for it to be truthful. Now, for modern readers like ourselves, that might bother some of you. I mean, if you want me to accept something as historical and credible and grounded in, in real time and place, then it should follow a certain structure, a certain pattern. I mean, if you're going to tell me how you, you met your wife, don't start with, in the story, with your wife, you and you're already married. And then you go back and you're like, well, we, you know, I was doing this, and then, then we, when we were together, but then this is how we met the first time. And, like, that's confusing. Like, what are you doing? So don't give me some mess of this, this, this random ordered thing. But that's us imposing our standards onto the text. And if we do that, we just might miss what Luke is trying to do. Luke cho chose to order his account this way. Not because his history is off, but because in his historical arrangement, he's trying to make a theological point. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, how do you know that Luke's account isn't chronological? Well, just look at, at verse uh, 23 in, in our text this morning. And one of the complaints Jesus anticipates is that the Nazarenes will say, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Well, if you're reading in, in, in order with Luke, he hasn't talked about Capernaum yet. So you're like, well, what did he do in Capernaum? And in the next section right after this, he tells you what he did in Capernaum. He's healing people. He's performing healings. He's casting out demons. In Mark's gospel, chapter 1 records this same event. But at this point, Jesus has already called his disciples. In Luke, Jesus calls his first disciples after Nazareth and Capernaum. So is this an inconsistency? No. This shouldn't lead us to ask, how credible is Luke's account? But rather, why did Luke choose to order it this way? Context matters. Arrangement matters. Are you tracking with me? 
I mean, I, I told this to some people ahead of time. They're like, what? I, I, I missed what you said after this because I, couldn't, I was trying to get over that point. Can I, can I go on? Are you with me? Luke is trying to tell us several things. And so what are they? Well, let me point out at least a few of them. First, Jesus is the victorious one who brings about reversals. Jesus is the victorious one. He brings about reversal for us. There's no denying this. Let me ask you another seemingly random question. Last week, Pastor Lawrence covered Jesus' genealogy. And in that sermon, he acknowledged that, that Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy differ from each other. And he kind of explained that. If you, don't, if you missed that, you can, look, you can look now, you can see, like, there's different names. So you can go and, and you can listen to Pastor Lawrence's sermon. You can hear how he, how he worked through that. But here's another question for you to think about. Why does Matthew's gospel start with a genealogy? And Luke's gospel throws this genealogy in here at the end of chapter 3. Why do that? Again, is Luke just sloppily putting all these things together? No. He's giving us an orderly account. So let's follow his line of thinking. You see, after his genealogy, Jesus is then tested in the wilderness for 40 days. Now, some scholars would make connections to Israel's wilderness wanderings. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is tested in the wilderness for 40 days. You see, you see what they're doing? And they would show that Jesus is the new Israel. He's the one who's obedient. He's the one who's faithful. He's the one who trusts God where Israel didn't. And I think that's true, but I think it's more than that. I think Luke is telling us more than that here. In Luke, Jesus' genealogy ends by tracing his line back to Adam. Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of God. And what do we know about Adam? Adam was tested and fell in the garden. His sin made us outcasts impoverished in the wilderness and in need of God. But Jesus has come to identify with us in our sin and shame, but as the new Adam. He starts in the wilderness. Get this. He starts in the wilderness, but he's bringing us back in. He's bringing us back into fellowship with God. Jesus is tested in the wilderness, and he's victorious. Through his victory, we will be brought back into fellowship with God. Where Adam's sin led to death, Jesus' victory will lead to life. It's a reversal that's happening here. He's bringing us from the wilderness back into the garden. Do you see it? It's there. Have you ever wondered if you can have a relationship with God, that, that having a relationship with God is possible? that he can actually know me and I can actually know him. And Jesus, the answer is a resounding yes. It's true. His victory in the wilderness is a foreshadowing of his victory on the cross. Jesus is victorious and he will expel the evil one. That accuser who has deceived so many to believe that God has nothing of substance to offer. That God only wants to hide the real pleasures and treasures of this world from us. But Jesus is not so easily seduced. Jesus will be the one who has the power to bring the outcast in. And now we're ready to, to consider why Jesus' message in Nazareth was Luke's first order of business. As he emerges from the wilderness... 
filled with the power of, of the Spirit, he's coming to declare what he will do for us. Second, Jesus is the anointed one who brings us renewal. He's the anointed one. He's the anointed one. In verse 16, Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, as an aside, I want to mention two things here really quickly, two things that that show us that Jesus was devoted to the things of God from an early age. First, in, in verse 16, it tells us that attending synagogue on the Sabbath was custom for Jesus. It was a regular pattern in his life. It was a regular pattern in his life. I'm not saying you have to come to church. I'm just saying, for Jesus, it was a regular pattern in his life. It's just an observation. I'm just saying it. That's all I'm saying. Second, Jesus had great familiarity with the scriptures. Let me, let me make this point by showing you this picture. Can we, can we put this up? This, this is a, so, so Jesus, they handed him the Isaiah scroll. Jesus unravels this scroll. Let, let me ask you this question. How many chapters are in the book of Isaiah? 66. You just answered a question that nobody in this synagogue service would have known the answer to. I'm like, what, what do you mean chapters? What are you talking about? You see that little box? You can kind of see it. That, that is where, I, where Isaiah 61 is, where Jesus is reading from. So he wouldn't have thought, like, oh, let me find chapter 61. Of course, it's at the end of the, the, the scroll here. So I'm going to, like, like, just point that out. Like, Jesus found this. He went straight to this. He knew what he wanted to say. This is the, t- he didn't even finish reading past chapter, uh, verse 2. He read this. Now, it's a small detail, but there's, there's a familiarity and an intimacy with the word of God that I commend to each one of us. We have ample resources to learn the word of God, but do we do it? Do we use these tools in that way? Or do these tools become a crutch so that you don't have to actually know it? You're like, I, I know that, like, I, I, you know, I don't even have to find this book anymore. I mean, usually, you know, when I was first, a, first became a Christian, I opened the Bible and I'm like, oh, I need to look at the table of contents here and figure out where to go. Now, now you're just like, well, I'll just, uh, I don't even have to know. I'll just like, click on this button, click on that button, I'm there. <laughs> but do we, it's, it's helpful. It is helpful. I'm not, I'm not saying that, there's nothing wrong with that. You use your phones, it's fine. But, but do, are you using it to be, fam- are you becoming more familiar with it? Is it, is it getting in you? When you gather to talk to other people about the Bible, is it a text you expect to be easily explained and digested? Oh, of course this means that, and you just move on. Or is it something you continue to wrestle with, continue to engage with, continue to chew on, to discover more of its endless depths and mysteries, its complexities and beauties? We should approach the word of God with a posture of teachability. You come into it saying, Lord, 
teach me. You won't understand it all after reading it a couple of times. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy to think that way. You, it, this book is not that easily mastered. But if you allow it, it has the power to transform you. Regular, simple pursuit. And so my prayers for, for you is that you would push through the frustrations and the pangs long enough to realize that you're truly hungry for it. Okay, back to the point. That was just an aside. Back to the point. Jesus is the anointed one who brings us renewal. Literally, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. And the people hearing this immediately knew what Jesus was talking about. And they probably grappled with the fact that we, we grew up with this guy. I mean, I know where, I know where he lives. I, I, isn't this the, the son of Joseph? But they also have a category for this. They're like, I, I know what the Messiah is. So they're, they're, their heads are probably spinning like, you're the Messiah? And they're like, I'm trying to put this together. But for those of us who don't have these categories, what's a Messiah? I mean, what, what exactly will the Messiah do? And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to bring about the kingdom of God. I am going to deliver justice and peace in this world. Total, total justice, total peace, all of it. But you see, the pride and idolatry that riddles us is not easy to overcome. Those who aren't humble toward God are unwilling to receive what he has to offer them. And I think many people must wrestle with that. God offers me help, but I'm self-sufficient. God cares for my needs, but what needs do I have? Or at least what needs can he meet? God is my refuge, but I have other sources of security. I have money to turn to. I have food and drink to turn to. I have vocation and social stability to turn to. God, you're just one option, and I'm not even sure you'd be my first. Do you think any of those things can make you skeptical toward Jesus? But get this, get this. What Jesus is proclaiming through this Isaiah passage is a vision of the year of Jubilee. This is what he's saying his ministry will be about. A year, the year of Jubilee. That's what Isaiah means when he says the year of the Lord's favor. Every 50th year, the Israelites were to forgive debts. They were to return any land that they had gained from other Israelites during the previous 49 years. They were to help the poor among them. They were to release their indentured servants. They were to forgive it all. All were to be equal in the sight of God. This is a picture of what making wrongs right means. You're saying, this is what it looks like. But in Israel, the year of Jubilee is, is mainly social renewal. A way to maintain justice, to restore order. But, but what Jesus is referring to in Isaiah is much, much more than that. When God sent Jesus to proclaim good news to the poor, this term poor refers to anyone, anywhere, who is in distress for any reason, including the, the things that are caused by sin, which is quite a bit, right? It's, it's hard to calculate the total impact of sin committed by people across all times, all communities, all cultures, all places over human history. That's what we're living in right now. All of it being absorbed through the anointed one. That's why they say in verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. These are gracious words. You're going to do that? 
To proclaim freedom literally means the canceling of debt. In fact, freedom in Luke and Acts always refers to the forgiveness of sins. So I'm going to cancel it all. And by now you may be thinking from, from one vantage point, that sounds too good to be true. God can really do that. You mean canceling every debt I've ever incurred? Every broken relationship? Every bad decision? Every hurtful word? Every time I've taken advantage? Every time I've slandered? Every time I've gossiped? Every time I've participated in perpetuating injustice toward another, whether intentionally or unintentionally? He's going to cancel that? And from another vantage point, you're thinking, that sounds nice, but how do you do it? I mean, can you even, can you even do that? Like for, in Israel, could, they, could you even do this? Well, in Israel, they didn't do it. They didn't do this. Which is why in Isaiah 61, you have this prophetic vision where God is saying, I will send my servant to do it. God is using the year of the Lord's favor to signal a time when all people and all creation will be welcomed into an environment free from rebellion toward God, where the glory of God fills the earth. A place where people will actually love God and love their neighbor. Isn't that amazing? It sounds like heaven on earth, and it's supposed to. Friends, the Christian response to this is not, yeah, right. In a moment, we're going to consider the hearts of these Nazarenes. But let's not be critical of their skepticism and not check our own. So Jesus' sermon is that not only is this possible, it's arrived through him. Today, this prophecy has been fulfilled through Jesus. And today, today, it is still the year of the Lord's favor. Today is the year of the Lord's favor. Today. We will stand on equal footing with one another before God. And when God does this for us, he then wants us to joyfully exert ourselves to do the same toward others. Anywhere you encounter another person, you come as one who's been transformed by the power of God. You are an extension of Christ himself. Through the Spirit, you've become a little anointed one. God makes us like him. The power of God through the Spirit of God dwells in you. Did you know that? Did you know that? So when you go into your homes, when you go into your offices or in your neighborhoods or to your parks or wherever it is that you go, God can use you as an agent of change in the lives of others. How? How? It's, it's simple. At the, at the park, that, that play date, the person you're with, gosh, parenting is just so hard, but you seem so patient. How do you do it? You're like, I don't, I'm not patient. I'm just, I'm just praying. I don't, I don't know. In the office, man, I can't stand our boss. Or can you believe our coworker? But you never complain. Why not? Because you care for them. You don't, you don't have to agree with them, but you, you care for them. I mean, you, you might even say, this is crazy, but you might even say that you love them. Not in your strength, but because of Christ. Or you say, I, I, I'm going to be a diligent 
I'm going to be diligent in my work, and I'm, I'm going to intend good for my coworkers year after year, just faithful service with love and integrity and conviction, because today is the day of the Lord's favor, and because Jesus makes it so. Our conflict is real, but it's passing away. And I'm learning to live for the things that will truly be eternal. I'm learning to live that way. I want to live that way. I want to, I want to, I want to practice. I want to walk in that. Engaging in this work. This, this is the work of God himself. I, I love how John Oswald puts this. He says of the anointed one, he will make of his people what they cannot make of themselves. You think, I want to be a more, more loving person. He will make of his people what they cannot make of themselves. I want to be more patient. I want to be more forgiving. He will make of his people what they cannot make of themselves. And God provides the power and he expects you to trust in him that he is doing a good work in you and through you. Third, Jesus is the rejected one who brings us redemption. Jesus is the rejected one who brings us redemption. Now, this, this is where we get a little more personal. If, if God can really bring such forgiveness, such pardon, such joy, I mean, wouldn't it be ruined the very next moment? Right? It would. It would, right? Because we're, we're still people. We still have sin-deceived hearts. We'll mess it up. But in fact, Jesus isn't just providing forgiveness. He is providing wholeness. A life without sin. A life where rebellion has been wiped away. No more sin. No more pain. No more death. And that great physician heals it all. Are you interested? A few weeks ago, Pastor Danny preached on Anna and Simeon. And so they were waiting at the temple to meet the Messiah who would bring salvation. And after Simeon finally saw baby Jesus, Luke 2 says, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So that the thoughts of many hearts Will be revealed. To, to some, the person and proclamation of Jesus will be like a sanctuary, a welcome presence of peace and reconciliation and healing. But to others, the message of Christ will be a snare, a stumbling block, one that provokes our outrage toward God. So what kind of people find Jesus to be a sanctuary? And what kind of people see him only as a snare? Jesus' appearance in the synagogue begins with him standing up to read, but it ends with the people desiring to throw him down. And Jesus provoked them. He provoked them. He provoked them to do it. What's he trying to show in them? Well, at least it, what we can see is this, is this is not a spiritually healthy community. I mean, don't you agree? Are you guys, you guys about to start a rock? Are you going to throw somebody down? Something wrong here. The sentiment of the proverb Jesus mentions in verse 23 is that if you're going to heal, the healing should begin at home. We're, we're your priority, right? Like you're starting with us, right? You see, they think of Jesus in some ways as their possession. They're like, the Messiah is our Messiah. You guys didn't even know what the Messiah is. He's our Messiah. 
They think Jesus owes them. Their attitude is, I deserve this. I mean, it's almost like when, when athletes finally make it to the pros and they sign that, that first big contract and their family members start coming out of the woodworks to ask for things. They're like, they, they feel entitled to it. Like, You're going to bail me out, right? Like, you, I, I got a business plan for you. You're going to invest in me. They're like, how are we related? You're like, I'm, I'm your uncle, second, twice removed over here. And you're like, what? They're like, we're family. And Jesus knows this about them. He's drawing it out of them. But this is, this is not the heart of one who understands grace. I mean, is that, is that even the kind of relationship that you want with God? Oh, the, the, like, like, you struck it big. Like, you think I could get in on that? Like, you, like I don't really know him, but you, like, you think he'd do something for me too? Jesus alludes to two stories here in the Old Testament that signal two successive time periods where Israel was filled with idolatry and antagonism toward the ministry of the prophets Elijah and the prophet Elisha. They were unwilling to receive their message. Israel, they were unwilling to receive their message. So God sent them elsewhere. In a nutshell, Jesus is saying, what God has been planning all along hasn't changed. And he's not just doing it for you. He's doing it for all people, even your enemies. That doesn't bother us as much because we, we like inclusion. I mean, we generally probably, you probably don't think you have an enemy. But to many around the world, even today, many around the world, Jesus' teaching of inclusion here, it sounds like foolishness. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget this. During a brief summer in China, sitting in a coffee shop with my friend Mark, who was in the room here, you can vouch for him, you can go ask him afterward, talking to a Chinese student, we talked to this guy for hours in this coffee shop about the teachings of Jesus. And we told him, we told him this idea of, of love your enemies. He thought, he thought that was ridiculous. I mean, I'll never forget this. He, he leans in and he says, okay, so Mark kills my fiance. Jesus wants me to love Mark? I remember sitting back in my seat thinking, I think he's talking to you. I mean, just take, take Naaman, for example, here. You see, you see Naaman in verse 27. Naaman had literally led the Syrian army to raid some land in Israel and took with him a little Israelite girl. Probably wiped out her family. And the Lord brought favor and healing on him? But even though Naaman had wealth and position, he also had need. He was a leper. He had need. And he was willing to turn and admit that he couldn't resolve his need on his own. Neither his wealth nor status could cover him. So Jesus' point is that the favor of God is for anyone, people from all nations who receive him, who humble themselves and turn to the Lord. God dealt graciously with the Gentiles over the Israelites because God intends to be gracious and the Gentiles had hearts willing to turn and the Israelites did not. This is what Jesus is telling. You want signs and miracles, but what you really need is to start the engine of repentance and faith. You need to start this engine of repentance and faith, but you won't do it. You won't humble yourselves. At least when John, John the Baptist, was preparing the way, calling people to be baptized, preaching his message of repentance, the crowds that came to him asked, what should we do then? What should we do then? But here in Jesus' hometown, in anger, the people are saying, how dare you? When your starting point is, I deserve God's favor. 
then grace is just washed out. You say, I deserve this. Grace is washed out. You just can't get it. But when your posture is Jesus, son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That person comes low. God can heal people like that. People like that recognize they have a stain that can't be blotted out by human hands. But in drawing near to Jesus, they've come in contact with the hands of the divine. Charles Spurgeon, this great preacher, he understood that when you come to Jesus, he said it like this, you cannot come as righteous. You must come to Jesus to be washed. You must come to him to be clothed. You think you do not want washing. You fancy you are clothed and covered and and beautiful to look upon, but oh, the garb of outward respectability and outward morality often is nothing but a film to hide an abominable leprosy till God's grace changes the heart. If you will humble yourself before God, if you will turn on this engine of repentance and faith, this isn't a one-time thing. This is an ongoing need. The Lord is the great physician. He will heal you. But in his hometown, Jesus is rejected. And this is foreshadowing that Jesus will be the rejected one, subject even to the cross. And later in Luke, when on the cross, Jesus will be met with this same heart of hostility, with the people saying, let him save himself if he's God's Messiah. Let him do it. But in fact, what Jesus is doing is beginning the first day of the Lord's Jubilee. He's proclaiming good news to the poor. The blind can see. The deaf can hear. The oppressed made free. That's what Jesus is doing. And Jesus was willing to absorb our rejection because he was the anointed one, empowered by the Spirit of God. And he knew that he would be the victorious one who would bring about the year of the Lord's favor. The resurrection signals that the Jubilee has begun. It's the fount by which God's grace continues to pour out. And these gracious words have been spoken to you this day. And so I want you to take a moment to receive them. To take a moment to pray to your Savior. What will you have to say to him? Are you grateful for his correction? Seeing wounds healed can be long and hard. But his balm of grace is exactly what you need. And so I invite you, wherever you are, to take a moment to just pray to him. If you'll bow your heads and pray to him.
Heavenly Father, you have been so good to us. I pray that you would teach us to have hearts of humility. Lord, teach us to come low. Maybe there's even a heart of skepticism in this room today. God, I pray that we would learn to surrender that to you. To say, God, I, I trust you. Help me even in my unbelief. Lord, I want to believe. Help me. Be with me. Teach me. Guide me, Lord. Lead me. I don't know the way, but I know you, Jesus, and I know that I can follow you. I know that I can trust you. God, you've done it for us. You've led us through, and you're bringing us back in. And so, God, I pray that as, as we are humbling ourselves, God, may we have this mindset of the year of the Lord's favor is still today that your grace is pouring out. And that shaped the way that we love you and love each other, love others. God, be with us. Give us the power to do this. Give us the help to do it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.